You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Anybody recognize that song? Anybody know who sang it? Who? John Osborne. Well done, you, Paul. Excellent stuff. John Osborne, 1995, from her album Relish. What if God was one of us is the question that's asked in the song. A brilliant song, really brilliant song. At the time, I was a young, well, I was a relatively, I was still a young man. I was 20 whatever years ago. I'm still a young man. Anyway. But I remember listening to that song and thinking, I don't know what it is, but that song makes me feel like worshipping was one of us. Because it's just got that worshipy feel to it. Now, and it asks this, it poses this great question. That's great. Thank you, Dan. It poses this fantastic question. It fanta- poses the question, what, would, what if God was just one of us? What if, what if he was like one of us? And here's the truth of it is that in Jesus Christ, God was one of us and remains one of us and understands exactly what we are like. That's what, that's what the song poses. It poses this question. It asks a lot of dopey questions as well. But I really loved the song at the time. I remember there were some Christians I was hanging around with at the time, and they hated the song. And they said, the song's a sacrilege. And I said, no, the song is asking questions about God. Anybody who's asking questions about God is on the right road. Would anyone say Amen. I want to look this morning at a particular passage of Scripture that you are so familiar with, you will probably projectile vomit when I tell you what passage I'm going to be talking about, because you're so familiar with it. However, what I want to do is I want to look at it in a context that goes like this. In the last couple of times when I was speaking, I've been speaking from Mark's Gospel and from Matthew's Gospel a little bit, building on the same narrative story, and that is that as Jesus was going about his ministry, he's heading towards the high point of his ministry. In actual fact, he's just after coming over the top of the hill, as it were, of the high point of his ministry. He's about to head down to Jerusalem. And as we get to this point in the story, we see that the disciples are beginning to wonder, who exactly is this? Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about when Jesus calmed the storm. They said, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In the next time when he walked on the water, they screamed and said, it's a ghost, and then ended up worshiping him. And then we had the man whose eyes were partially opened and fully opened so that he could fully see. And it was an acted out parable of the blindness of the people around Jesus and the revealing of who he was. Well, now we're going to go one step further. We're going to go today to, uh, going to move on into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 to 17. It's just four verses. And we've made a journey now. Jesus is going through all of these experiences. He's been delivering the sick. He's been healing the sick. He's raised the dead. He's delivered the demon-possessed, opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, and loosened the tongue of those who couldn't speak. And so it's all building up this question about what Jesus' purpose is. And he goes up to this place 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee 
to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And now you know where we're going to. He's 40 kilometers north of Caesarea Philippi and he goes there with his disciples and he takes them there and he begins to talk to them and he asks them a couple of questions. And these are questions that we all need to ask ourselves, in my humble opinion. Let's begin the story. It says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now in some versions of this story that have been put on the screen, in some secularized versions of the story of Jesus, Jesus is presented in this situation as being somehow insecure. That he's uncertain of his cause. That he's uncertain of his purpose and he's uncertain of his identity. Jesus wasn't asking them a question because he needed a little bit of reassurance about who he was. It wasn't that Jesus was going off to Caesarea Philippi to find himself. He knew who he was. He knew what his purpose was. But he's here asking the disciples a bit of a loaded question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And this term, Son of Man, is an interesting term. It's a term that Jesus effectively gave himself. It's a self-applied title. And it can be taken a number of different ways. But probably the most likely way it's taken is the unassumedness of Jesus' description of himself as just being a Son of Man. The most likely interpretation of Jesus continually referring to himself as Son of Man is probably not the one that's taken from the book of Daniel, but most likely, who do the people say an ordinary bloke like me is? That's what, the, that's what Jesus is asking. Who do people say that this ordinary bloke from an ordinary background in Galilee, who do they say that he is? And it's easy to answer somebody else's question. Because the, the disciples replied, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, it's easy to offer somebody else's analysis of a situation. It's very easy to offer somebody else's opinion of a situation. So if somebody said to me, what would be, what's your wife's opinion of this, that, or the other? I could easily offer it, especially because there's no price in offering somebody else's opinion. When we offer somebody else's opinion, it costs us nothing, really. But I find it interesting that all of the people that the disciples say, that the people say Jesus is, are all dead. They're all dead. John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Elijah is long since dead, though there were prophetic rumors that Elijah would be restored. And Jesus said Elijah had been restored in John the Baptist, so he was, eh, that was the wrong answer. Some say that he was like the prophet Jeremiah. Some people think that because Jesus cried a lot and wept a lot and mourned a lot, that he was like Jeremiah. Or maybe he was just one of the other prophets. The bottom line here was that all of these people were dead people. And so their conclusion was that Jesus couldn't just be an ordinary guy. There was something unusual about him. He must be one of the big guys from the past who's after coming back to do things. Because the role that he was fulfilling was very prophetic. He was doing the things that prophets did. And so when Jesus asked this question, they were able to offer these answers. Hey, this is what the Pharisees think. This is what Herod Antipas thinks. This is what the fisherman who worked next to James and John thinks. This is what Jerry the plumber next door thinks. This is what people think. You know, it is possible for people to have a good opinion of Jesus and still be wrong. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, said this. He said, it is possible for people to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not the right ones. 
to have a high opinion of him, and yet not high enough. Our opinion of who Jesus is must be high enough. Sometimes you meet people and they say, ah, yeah, you know, Jesus is a great guy. You know, he, he, like he healed people and he taught great things. And, you know, he was, just, he was just a really good guy. And some people have reduced Jesus to just being a social worker. And the thing is that sometimes when we meet other people and we talk about the Jesus we know, and they say, ah, yeah, Jesus, he's a great guy. We kind of go, yes, hallelujah, we're getting a breakthrough. Somebody actually really likes Jesus. But it's easy to like a guy who raises the dead and heals the sick. And delivers the demon possessed. It's easy to like that guy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that opinion is high enough. See, some people have really high opinions. Does anybody know who this guy is? Who is it? Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. No, Mahatma Gandhi had strong opinions about Jesus. This is one of the things he said about Jesus. He said, Jesus to me is a great world teacher among others. Like, He's one of the great world teachers. He's a bit like Muhammad, or he's a bit like Krishna, or, you know, he can be like any of those. He's really just a world teacher. Now, the thing about Mahatma Gandhi is this. People really put a lot of store by what Mahatma Gandhi says. I think the reason is very simple. A bald guy who wears glasses, how could you not go wrong? He must be telling the truth. You need a better tan, comrade. And people go, oh, Mahatma Gandhi. Well, if Mahatma Gandhi said it, then it must be true. But Mahatma Gandhi didn't recognize Jesus. He didn't accept Jesus' claim to deity. He didn't accept Jesus' claim um, to divinity. He didn't accept Jesus' immortal claim. He didn't accept that Jesus had risen from the dead. He didn't accept any of those things. He just said, Jesus is a nice guy. And we kind of go, oh, yeah, well, if Mahatma Gandhi said it, it must be true. Sometimes we can be out there harvesting good opinions about Jesus, but not having the best opinion about Jesus. But Jesus, of course, as ever, turns around and socks it to his disciples. And he asks the most important question of all. And the question I want to ask you this morning, which is this. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is this morning? In your circumstances, in your life, in your situation, who do you say Jesus is? And that's a question that cuts to the heart of why the disciples are hanging around with Jesus in the first place. Why are you hanging around with me, lads? What are you doing following me and listening to me? Who do you say that I am? You've got to remember that up to now, Jesus hasn't made any great claims about his own personal identity. He's never made any really big claims. In actual fact, you see what's known as the messianic secret being acted out quite a lot. You hear Jesus healing people, and then he tells the person, don't tell anyone what I just did for you. I want you to go, the guy he healed recently at the town, near the town of Bethsaida, he laid hands on the guy, he healed him, and he said, no, don't go back into the town and tell them what I did. And this seems to happen time and time again. Why is he doing that? Well, he's turning the tables here on the disciples themselves. Who do you say that I am. The answer to this question, brothers and sisters, will define who 
we are as people. The answer to this question will define our future. It will determine where it is that we are going in our lives, where we are going now in this, our physical life, where we will go eternally when this physical life is over. The answer to that question is so important. And let me work it out a little bit for you. There's times in my life, there have been times in my life, is probably a better way to put it, when I'm not entirely sure I knew the full answer to this question. Because this Jesus that I began to follow, that I began to believe in back in 1986, I only had a little tiny glimpse of who he was, who he really was. And that image or that vision has increased over time. Serving, I hope, and following, I hope, Jesus Christ. It's as I've walked with God in the last 30 plus years, the image of who Jesus is or my understanding of what he is and what he means in our lives has changed. And I know this, I wish I knew then what I know now. I would have saved myself a lot of hassle, a lot of trouble, and a lot of worrying, I can tell you that. Peter dives in with a response, of course, who else but Peter, the loudmouth himself, speaks up. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is called the great confession. You are the Messiah, Jesus. That's who you are. That's who you are. Now, Peter's kind of right and he's kind of wrong. And this is why he's kind of right and why he's kind of wrong. What did Peter mean by a Messiah? I hope I'm not boring, you know, but this is an important question. What did Peter mean by a Messiah? Well, if you go back into the history of the Jews and their expectation of a Messiah around this time, you'll discover something interesting. They didn't actually have a portrait of a Messiah in their heads. The word Messiah is very important. The word Messiah simply means anointed for a job, or if you will, God's appointee, the appointed person to do a specific job. Now, the word Messiah didn't mean what it means to us, no, to the Jews then. And here's the important thing. The idea that the Jews had in their head about a Messiah changed depending on the circumstances that the Jews were in. In other words, depending on what their life situation was, how well they were, had been invaded or were set free, all determined their view of what the Messiah would do. In other words, they had a big task in mind for the Messiah. And their idea of the Messiah was that he's got this big task. And to them, the obvious big task of when God's appointee and anointed one comes along is he's going to get rid of the Romans. What else would he be doing? That's the big thing that needs to be done. You, if you did a vox pop down in, down in the middle of Jerusalem at that time and you asked, you know, Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda, what's the big task? He'd say, get rid of the Romans. And if you asked uh, Bethany, who was washing at the well, Bethany, what's the big task? He'd say, get rid of the Romans. They all had this idea that the big thing that would be on God's mind is surely to get rid of the pagan Romans just like he got rid of Pharaoh and got rid of the Egyptians. Get rid of them. That would obviously be the job of the Messiah. And when Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, he is absolutely right. But he's also absolutely wrong because he has a big task in his head that Jesus didn't come to do. Now here's the thing. I think that in all of our lives, we have this sense of the big task that God has to do in our lives. Sometimes we can have a sense that, obviously, if God is alive and God is real, then he will be interested in this part of my life. 
Like, for instance, following Jesus, becoming a Christian, and following Jesus, if you and your wife follow him, you know, it could potentially save your marriage. Would anyone say amen? amen. But Jesus didn't come to save your marriage. Do you know what I'm saying? You may be physically in sickness and in need of healing. And following Jesus and trusting in God may mean that you may get that physical healing. Would anyone say amen? amen. But Jesus didn't just come to heal your body. Do you know what I'm saying? You may not have a job at the moment and you may think that the biggest thing on God's mind right now is that you get a job. And yes, God does provide his people with provision and work. Would anyone say amen? But Jesus didn't come just so that you could get a job. Do you know what I'm saying? And what Peter had in mind was that the big job was to get rid of the Romans. If we could only get rid of the Romans, everything would be fine. If I could only find a wife, not me obviously, I've got one. But if I could only find a wife, everything would be fine. If I only could find a job, everything would be okay. Lord, why don't you give me a house? We have our idea of what the big task is that God has on his mind for us and for our lives. But his real task is to set you free from your sin. To change your identity from just a son of man to a child of God. To, that you would be born again, that you would be saved, that you would know a life of following him and an eternity of being with him. That's his real purpose and his real plan. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, everybody knows what Jesus' response to this one. It says, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because you didn't learn this from any human being. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. It was revealed to you. You didn't figure this out in your own. And how was it that he didn't figure it out in his own? Because Jesus obviously wasn't fulfilling the idea of the Messiah that he had in his head. He wasn't so, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Simon Peter said, right, hit nine Hit nine Romans over the head with a blunt instrument. Bingo, he must be the Messiah. Or cast the Roman chariots into the sea. Bingo, must be the Messiah. He wasn't fulfilling any of the things of the big task. He didn't seem to be doing what he was anointed to do. And the Jews had this idea about being anointed, which is important. Remember, Moses, if you will, was the Messiah of his time. He was appointed for the job of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Do you get me? David was anointed for the job of being the king of Israel and to lead the people in the worship and following of God. You get it? There's a guy back in the Old Testament when they were out in the desert. Two guys, in actual fact. Their names were Bezalel and Aholiab. That's what their names were. Funny names. And they were anointed, according to the scriptures, to do craft work. To do and build the crafts that were used in the old tabernacle out in the wilderness. And the Lord said, I have put an anointing on Bezalel and Aholiab. And they're going to make all the stuff for the, for, the, for the tabernacle. They were anointed for that task. And you could hardly call them the Messiah because they were doing a bit of fiddling around, could you? Their idea of anointing was directly associated with the task. Let me translate it. Imagine Pat the plumber was God's anointed plumber to fit holy hot tubs and sacred showers or something. That's their idea. And Jesus wasn't fulfilling this idea. And that's why Jesus said to him, Peter, human beings didn't tell you this, buddy. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And I love what he starts off by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Blessed are you, Pat Fitzgerald, because you know Jesus. Blessed are you, uh, Mr. Corcoran, because you know, you know 
you know Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, Joseph O'Donovan. Blessed are you, Anne Fitzgibbon, because you know Jesus. Can I just say to you this morning, I don't care what your circumstances are like. No, I do care, but I don't care. You know what I'm saying? So the point I want to make is, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are this morning. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are blessed. You're blessed. That's it, lads. From now on, blessed. What he says here, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Macarius, meaning blessed, fortunate, to be envied. You are to be envied, Simon, son of John, because you know who I am. And us knowing who Jesus is puts us in a blessed state, a state of beatification. We're already beatified. We're already happy and blessed simply because we know him. Now I know you may not have the job you want and you may not have the wife you want or the husband that you want. If you're married, you, whether you like it or not, you, want, you, you, know, you get the rest of the picture. Or you may not have the car you want or the house you want or the job you want, the career you want or all the income that you want. But you are already blessed. Please, let's get that clear in our heads. We are now a blessed people. And the thing about it is this. When we already know who Jesus is, if we really had the vision of him in all of who he is, all of what he has come to do, we would never fear again. We would never have a concern for another day. The disciples accepted Jesus, followed him. It cost 11 of the 12 of them, their lives, they died, they paid, with the, they paid the price with their lives. And then one of them who survived all of that, the Apostle John, I was going to put up the verse, but I won't because there's a lot in it. John is there in the book of Revelation, right? I just think, I think this is an image of what it feels like to really see Jesus. It says that he turned around, he was there in the book of Revelation, the island of Patmos, he'd been sent there, he was exiled for being a believer and for preaching the gospel, and when he was there, Jesus appeared to him in all of his glory. His face was on fire. His voice was like the sound of many waters, like the ocean crashing so loud was his voice. He was shining, and it says that John, he says, and I fell at his feet as though I was dead. As though he was dead. Can you imagine having that vision of Jesus? The vision of Jesus that makes us fall at his feet as though we were dead. We couldn't take it in anymore. Can't take in anymore of who this Jesus is. Who do you say he is? C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, this is a little bit wordy, but worthy of reading every word, in my opinion. He wrote in Mere Christianity about Jesus, and I, this quote is just, it's kind of one of those ones you just simply can't get around. It's a little bit long, but it's okay. He said this, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He didn't intend to give us options on who he was. Either he was and is who he said he was, or he's mad. He's demon-possessed. He's deluded if he isn't who he said he was. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Who is he in your life? When the excrement hits the ventilation machine. <laughs> Who do you say he is? See, Jesus doesn't leave anybody in neutral zone. If you met the real Jesus, you would not be left neutral. Tim Keller is a, an American Christian pastor, writer, author, excellent, absolutely excellent speaker and author. And he wrote this about Jesus. He said, it's impossible to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. Amen. You either bow down in wonder or you go away offended. And that's what so many people did. They went away offended. They said, how can he make these claims about himself? How can he say that? How can he be risen from the dead? What are you talking about? And they go away offended. Because they would have met with the real Jesus and said, hang on a second, the real deal. Not the Machiavelli version that gets stuffed into, so, into society. Not the version that's portrayed by him by the likes of, with respect to him, Mahatma Gandhi or the whosoevers. But the real Jesus, he's a stumbling block is what the Bible says. He's a stumbling block. You'll fall over him because of the claims that he makes about himself and what those claims mean for our lives. My prayer is that we will have a bigger vision of who Jesus is. It really kind of boils down to that. We would just have a bigger vision. Can you imagine if your one prayer was, Lord, let me see you a bigger vision of who you are. Let me see the bigger vision of who you are over my circumstances, over my life, over my neighbor's circumstances, over the circumstances of my workplace. Would you give me a vision of who you truly are? And if that means that I fall at your feet as though dead, hallelujah. Paul was writing, to the Romans, he said this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Tom thinks that that's good news. Does anybody else think that's good news? If you openly not secret, I'm a secret Christian, but I don't want to tell anybody that I'm a Christian. If you openly declare Jesus is Lord, who wants to openly declare Jesus as Lord? Amen. Amen. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, but by openly declaring you are saved. I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't know why it works this way, but this is what the writer, this is what the apostle said. You've got to own it. You've got to speak it out, baby. You can't just keep it in a secret or whisper it into a jar and put the lid in it so that nobody might find out. You can't whisper it to somebody in the, I'm actually a Christian, I'm after, don't tell anyone I'm after becoming a Christian. You can't do that. He says you've got to openly declare it, you've got to own it. Paul says be ready to give an account for the faith and the hope that is within you. Be ready, he says. Be ready. Are you ready? Yes. Who's the Jesus that you would confess? Do you want a bigger vision of him? Paul writes, we ask that God would give you complete knowledge of his will and give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Amen. You see, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, Peter, did not learn this from human beings. And the reason he didn't learn it from human beings was because it was a spiritual revelation to him. It came to him on the basis of his previous 
understanding. Did you ever have one of those eureka moments when things that you didn't think were connected actually turn out to be connected? You know that kind of situation? It's happened to me when I'm playing the guitar the odd time, thanks, thanks to my brother Joe who taught me the guitar. And you know, sometimes I'm playing the guitar and I'm, I go, oh wow, that chord actually is here as well and it's up here as well. No, I didn't just pick up the guitar first time and go, here's this chord, this chord, this chord. What was going on for Peter was that Peter had this framework. He knew the scriptures. He had an understanding of what the Messiah was going to be. And then bang, the lights came on. Yes, he's the guy. He's the guy. He fits the picture. This is, this is who he is. He's got to be, look, look what he's doing. He's, he must be the Messiah. But that only happened because he understood God's word and understood what it said about Jesus Christ. When we say, Lord, I want to know you more. What does that mean? Does that mean going for a pint with him on a Friday night with respect? Is that, what, is that what I want to know you more means? Or does I want to know you more mean I want to draw from your revelation, I want to hear more about what people say about you in the scriptures. I want to know you more because I can look and I can read it and I can hear the stories of what people said about you. And I want to learn to know you more. I want a bigger revelation of who you are. And that's my prayer this morning as we close. I'm going to keep it really simple. I'm going to keep it really simple. If you want to say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to have that bigger vision of who you are. I want to have that Peter vision. I want to have that John vision of who you are. I want to pray this morning that you would gain spiritual wisdom and understanding in understanding who Jesus is. You okay to pray that? Can I invite you to stand? Standing up is a good way of praying. We were talking about on Tuesday night. Standing sends a signal to your body, especially when you're at church meeting like this. Standing up means, yeah, I'm getting ready to do something now. You don't kind of stand up in the middle of watching the TV and go, I just thought I'd sit back down again. No, you stand up because you're getting ready to do something. And when we stand up, we're getting ready to worship God and we're getting ready to pray this morning. I can I invite you to lift your hands in prayer this morning? The worship band are going to lead us in a second. And the song we sang, King of Glory, just a moment ago. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, Lord, that as we go from here today, Lord, and as we take into our heads and our hearts who you truly are, Lord, would you give us wisdom and understanding? Would anyone say amen? amen. Lord, we pray that as we look at our circumstances and we look at our situations and we look at the big tasks that need to be done in our lives, Lord, I pray we would see you for all that you are, Lord. I pray that we would see all of your identity, that you are the risen Lord, that you are the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I pray that when we come in and bring our prayers before you, we wouldn't pray timidly, but we would pray to the one who has all power. Would anyone say amen? Lord, I pray that we would see you truly as you are. Lord, I pray, even if it be your will, that we would be struck and fall as though dead at your feet, Lord Jesus. So great would be our vision of you. Let us take it in, Lord. Lord, I pray we would own you and know you for all that you are. All that you are. Lord, either you are who you said you are, or we're wasting our time. Either you rose from the grave, or we're wasting our time. Lord, I pray we would take these questions to our hearts. 
even this week and we ask ourselves who do we say that Jesus is when we look at our circumstances who do we say Jesus is when we look at the big problems in our lives who do we say Jesus is and let your word be our answer we pray in Jesus name and God's people said aloud amen let's sing open the eyes open the eyes of my heart Lord open the eyes of my heart I want to see you I want to see you open the eyes as a prayer open the eyes of my heart open the eyes of my heart I want to see I want to see you, see you high. of my heart I want to see you I want to see you and we close in prayer Lord I pray that as we go into Monday morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts as we go into Tuesday that you would open the eyes of our hearts as we go to Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we want to see you, not as we've constructed you. We want to see you, not as the world constructs you. We want to see you, not as certain members of society see you. We, we want to see you as you are, as you are spelled out and as you are declared in the scriptures to be the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And when we speak to our situations and circumstances that we would be doing so in the name of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let us have a growing revelation, Lord, of who you are. Lord, so that we may be able to answer honestly when we ask ourselves who do we say Jesus is and let that be the challenge to our prayers to our conversations to our times to our work to our loves and to our labors open our eyes we pray in Jesus name and God's people said amen, amen. may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift up the light of his countenance and give you his peace in Jesus name Amen. God bless and go with you, lads. Guys are going to play us up. Open the eyes. Hallelujah.